Blog Talk Radio. September 15th, 2017 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of the ideas behind American exceptionalism. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff. Welcome back. Those of you who are joining me over here at the Blog Talk Radio chat room for the new schedule. So this is the first time that I've done three of my own shows in one week. I've actually done three shows a week before if I was guest hosting for Tammy Bruce and maybe also doing my own show, sometimes maybe even three in a row for her, but it's been a while. So this is official. I'm here on a Friday after having done shows on Monday and Wednesday. Hope you guys are liking it. I'm enjoying it. And again, if you go over to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, you'll see I've got program notes up for today's show and a title, Flavors of Censorship. So we've got three different flavors of censorship that are in the news this week, and we're going to talk about all of them, Trump, Antifa, and net neutrality, all in the news. And I've got a number of links and YouTube video and everything else for you to check out over at the blog. Again, that's don'tletitgo.com. If you look over the program notes and there's something that you know you want to talk about with me today, you want to call in. The number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. As I said, welcome to those of you who want to participate over here live in the chat room at Blog Talk Radio. If you just started listening to me, or maybe if you only listen through iTunes, you don't know that if you join live, again, the shows are Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Pacific, over at Blog Talk Radio. If you join in live, you can come into the chat room and leave comments there. Depending on how well my brain is working and how many items I feel like I have to get through, I'm more or less over there monitoring the comments and bringing them in whenever I can. I just want to say hi to Tim who shares my show. And it's interesting because Tim will choose a picture to share with my show each week. And it's not always my favorite picture. So for example, today I learned a lesson in don't put a picture out there on Instagram unless you really like it because Tim will use it to share with your show. I yesterday, I had a workout yesterday. So I do this high intensity training. It's really intense and I do it only one day a week, really heavy workout. So for example, yesterday I did a 360 pound leg press for two minutes under load. And if you know, if you're familiar with high intensity training, so what you do 
is you very slowly for a count of 10, press the weight out away from you. And then very slowly to count of 10, bring it back. And the whole time you're supposed to be constantly and quickly inhaling and exhaling. So you're never holding your breath. You can't hold your breath in order to push this weight. Don't cheat, you know, keep really good form, very careful, very smooth, controlled movements. And you have to do this if you're actually going to succeed in, in, you know, doing a time under load for the weight and everything, and then move up the next week, it's, it should be over two minutes. So it was just about two minutes time under load yesterday for me to be, which was 360 pounds. That's eight pounds higher than my all-time record, which had been like over five years ago or something. So I'm pretty excited, worked really hard. And then I decided, okay, now I want to run over to the piercing salon where I got my nose done in February and have them switch my little ring out. Those of you who are familiar with these nose piercings, if you want to take out and put in new jewelry, you pretty much should get a professional to do this thing. So I've just had no time and I've been thinking about it. I really want it. It's been bothering me ever since I see these pictures of these perfectly fitted little ring. Okay. I got to go do this. So I go do it and I'm excited about it. I mean, it's just, it, it is awesome. It is perfect. It fits exactly perfectly with like the tiniest bit of space left over so it can still move and everything. And it's not, you know, for instance, like squishing my nostril or anything. It, it, it fits exactly right the way it is now. So I'm very happy. So I throw on some sunglasses. I have no makeup. I'm, you know, this is post-workout. I've got no makeup. And I throw on sunglasses that I take this picture. I just throw it on Instagram because I'm excited about it. It's lame picture. So Tim taught me the lesson. Amy, don't share the picture unless you want it to be really just out there on Twitter. So um, thank you for sharing and promoting my show, Tim. I, I, yeah, that picture not. So I, I'll do some more pictures with my perfect little nose ring after I put on some makeup and get some more rest and all, all that kind of good stuff. But yeah, thank you to those of you. Those of you who share my show, that is one of the main ways that you can help me in this new endeavor. What I should do is I should always tell Tim, please use X picture, whatever it is that I love, but he, he, he usually chooses quite well. Um, that's, that's bad on me, right? To put that one out there. So over at the blog, like I said, don't let it go.com. This is the program notes. The first bit of censorship that we talk about is one that some people think isn't really censorship at all. They think it's really just Trump exercising his own right to free speech. I mean, free speech applies to everyone as well. You know, Trump should be able to do it. What's going on? You guys probably heard the story a couple days ago. Actually, it was Rob Abiera who first shared this with me. So thanks, Rob. White House spokeswoman Sarah Huckabee Sanders, she's the press secretary. She said, implied that ESB, uh, ESPN, you know, the sports network, Jamel Hill, she co-hosts a show called SC6 with Michael and Jamel. She made some comments about Trump, and Sanders said that some of the comments that Hill made were, quote, a fireable offense, a fireable offense. Here's the full quote from Sanders. Um, let me get it. Yeah, here it is. Let's see. What did she say? Oh, let me get it again. Sorry, I'm in the wrong place. Oh, yeah. that Okay, so some comments that Jamel Hill made were, quote, 
uh, one of the comments was one of, one of the more outrageous comments that anybody could make and certainly is something that is a fireable offense by ESPN. That's what Sanders said. So Hill made some comments, and yeah, they're outrageous. Hill said, for example, Donald Trump is a white supremacist who has largely surrounded himself with other white supremacists. She also wrote on Twitter, Trump is the most ignorant offensive president of my lifetime, His rise is a direct result of white supremacy, period. The height of white privilege is being able to ignore his white supremacy because it's of no threat to you. Well, it's a threat to me. I don't think Trump is a white supremacist. I think he is a pragmatist who thinks nothing of violating your rights. You remember the show that I did. Donald Trump is just not that into your rights. And I, I still think that's exactly the case. And we see that also in his conduct on Twitter this morning as well. We'll take a look at that in a second. But so here's Sanders, right? Sanders is the White House press secretary saying about a media outlet that something that was said by a person on that media outlet that was critical of the president is a fireable offense. Now, is Sanders just exercising her or, you know, President Trump's free speech rights? Is she speaking on behalf of the president and just exercising his free speech rights? I mean, after all, you know, Hill insults the president and then the president is going to come back and make some commentary about it. Right. How about that? Oh, people, people are in the chat room talking about my picture is not so bad. I'm picky about my pictures. Okay. Let me go back to, to Hill though. Sorry, I got distracted. So, but but I mean, what do you think about this? Because I have people on Twitter today who are telling me, no, this is this is not censorship at all. And I know that Rob in the chat room agrees that it's censorship because he originally shared this story calling it censorship. I happen to think that it is censorship for someone who is a representative of a government official to state out there that some sort of consequence should befall a media host, you know, a host on a, on a program because of that media host's criticism of the particular public official, right? We've got the president being criticized by someone in the media, and then we have a representative of the president saying something bad should happen to you, particularly you should get fired because of your criticism of the president. What is the role of the media in a free society. One of the crucial roles of the media in a free society is to engage in critical commentary about our president. And as we talked about, because I did a whole show on the value of freedom of expression and, and what it is exactly, and I was reading from a Q&A that had been done with Ankar Gatte from the Ayn Rand Institute, who was very clear on this. If you have freedom of expression you have the right to say not just rational things, true things. You have to also have the right to say wrong things, irrational things, even racist things. You know, there there are these people out there now who, if you don't agree with their politics and you happen to be white, then suddenly you are a white supremacist. One of the people who has been suffering from being called a white supremacist when he clearly is not is Ben Shapiro. And again, this was happening to him yesterday, uh, you know, when he was going to UC Berkeley. And we'll talk about that in a bit. 
Shapiro's Jewish. I don't think Donald Trump is a white supremacist, right? Um, but nonetheless, Hill has the right to state these opinions. And it is crucial in a free society that we not have government officials put any sort of, you know, kind of threatening uh, comments out towards media due to media's criticism of that public official. So, for example, I'm pretty sure that the people who are coming after me on Twitter this morning saying, no, 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 this is not censorship. Donald Trump is just exercising his free speech rights. Every, you know, free speech doesn't just apply to us. It applies to him, too. I'm pretty sure that if you showed those people the story about Hillary Clinton, if you remember Hillary Clinton, when she was running for president, there was a um, one of the comedy outlets had published a video of, you know, a comedy video that was critical of her. And she apparently went to the company that produced this video and said, I want the personal contact information of the people who were in the video and you need to take it down, telling them what they should do and that she wanted their con their personal contact information because of this video that was critical of her. Now, you know, of course she's been in office and political office and she was running for office at the time. This is threatening behavior against the media. It has what you would call a chilling effect and yet, no, you know, those people who are Trump supporters, he can do no wrong. Tim says, is calling someone a white supremacist on a TV show just criticism? It's outrageous. It is outrageous. But nonetheless, we need to have people have the freedom to do this without threats of consequences, right? Without threats of consequences. Now, can maybe Trump can go out there and say, well, Clearly, I'm not a white supremacist, but probably the best thing that he should do is ignore, I would say, ignore something like, I mean, it is patently ridiculous that he is a white supremacist. This is just garbage and joke and stuff. But if you have a White House press secretary saying that someone should be fired when someone is making comments about the president, I mean, you know, what do we say? Is, Is it? Is it just criticism? Is it not criticism? Who do you want to have be the judge of what is criticism versus not? I mean, the only thing that people should not be able to do is make threats. Otherwise, let them shoot their mouth off and be irrational. And what is the answer to bad speech? More speech, John Stuart Mill. What you don't want is you don't want this idea that government is watching and is going to use its influence to have bad things happen to you if you say things that they don't like. It's easy for you to look at this. This is a ridiculous comment that he's a white supremacist and everything else. But it starts there. And then where does it go? We need to have absolute, as Ankar Gatte was talking about, absolute freedom of expression. If you are actually speaking saying something that you have a right to say in a place where you have a right to be and say it. You're not saying fire in a crowded theater. You're not actually inciting violence in a way that you're making this conspiracy to do physical harm to other people. Then you should be able to, to say it uh, and be free of the consequences. Let me go and tell you Trump's tweet this morning. And I have problem even with what, Trump did this morning. What did Trump do this morning, right? First of all, I think he should have apologized for what his press secretary did because the press secretary saying that some, you know, trying to 
tell ESPN what its employee retention policy should be, that's wrong. Government officials should not be doing that. So here's Trump. ESPN is paying a really big price for its politics and bad programming. People are dumping it in record numbers. Okay. You might say that's fine. Okay. He's out there on Twitter and, you know, he's going to go ahead and just insult ESPN or something. And maybe arguably, you know, again, let's go out and have the beer, the glass of wine or whatever, and talk about when can Trump have some sort of commentary about media outlets. But then this is what he ends the tweet with. He says, apologize for untruth. Apologize for untruth. He's telling ESPN what it should do, what its content should be. Apologize for, now you say, well, it isn't true. Okay, it's not true. Nonetheless, a president shouldn't be telling ESPN what it should and shouldn't do. Arguably, some people think that the president shouldn't even be making blatant commentary like this about ESPN. That is one interesting question, right? Um, But certainly, no, not that. You know, it shouldn't be telling ESPN what it should be doing about policy one way or the other. Is it still considered censorship when there's no legal force behind it, when the media outlet can simply ignore the suggestion? This is the thing. Right now, we are in a climate where Trump, first of all, has the propensity to regulate and do all sorts of things. Net neutrality is on the table right now. And as we'll talk about net neutrality, if it is implemented, the government is going to have control over which traffic is going to be treated well by internet service providers and which is not. Um, We're not going to have private companies be making those decisions. We still have the idea that the IRS could come and do all sorts of audits and stuff based on content of things. There are real issues with our government right now. Government has power over business and media outlets through regulation, through taxation and everything else such that we should worry about this. And, you know, if, if you say, okay, well, he really isn't ever going to do anything and, and no, oh, we shouldn't really worry about it. And he's just out there commenting. Doesn't he have free speech rights? You know, again, I would draw a line between him expressing an opinion versus telling them what they should do, either in terms of apologizing or firing a particular employee and stuff. Just go out there and say, this is not true. I am not a white supremacist. This is ridiculous. You know, some sort of evaluation, arguably. Okay, maybe that would be fine. But what I'd like you to go back and review, because I'm consistent on this, right? And I had somebody call me that was like, why are you on every day you're attacking Donald Trump and you didn't used to attack Barack Obama every day? Well, there's a couple of differences. Right now, I am making much more of a full-time job out of political commentary. I'm here three days a week, and I'm out there on Twitter and doing all this stuff. I've made a decision to devote more bandwidth and everything else to this endeavor. I was very critical of, of Barack Obama at every turn. I had coined the whole new nihilism with respect to the office of the president. And I spent entire shows just shredding speeches of Obama. So don't tell me I didn't criticize Obama. But the other thing is that there are a number of people who supposedly have been philosophical allies of mine 
friends, you know, fans of Ayn Rand and stuff who are defending Donald Trump. And I think it's more important than ever to point out when this guy is going beyond what the proper functions of government should be, failing to protect our rights, violating our rights, potentially, I'm going to really just keep his feet to the fire on this. I think this is something that's more important to do with respect to him because a lot of things, you know, and this is what a lot of people were saying, I wasn't going to vote for Hillary. I just couldn't bring myself to vote for Hillary. But part of the argument for voting for Hillary is that when things are done by a Trump administration, people are going to blame it on capitalism. Some people are even saying that Trump is some Ayn Rand hero, someone who Ayn Rand would admire. You know, he, he didn't even hire John Allison, who is a super awesome, qualified person that he had the opportunity to hire for Department of Treasury. If he doesn't even hire John Allison, he's got nothing to do with objectivism, this guy. And yet this is the sort of thing that is going to be misattributed to objectivism, you know, blame it. So I think it's more important than ever to speak out against this guy. But let me just remind you of something that I was on top of when Barack Obama and his supporters did it. It was called Attack Watch. If you remember this website, there was this Attack Watch campaign. It's a website. It was a website that said essentially that if you saw an inaccurate criticism of Barack Obama, so it'd be the equivalent of, you know, Hill calling the white supremacist. If somebody said something inaccurate about Obama, you were supposed to go over to the website and report it and everything else. And then they were going to go out and make sure that it was countered. And I remember a ton of people on the right going out there and criticizing attack watch. Um, uh, it was it was wonderful. There was a lot of Obama heckling tweet fests out there, as I say in this post. This post, by the way, is back from 2011 at my blog, and you can read it. I've, I've stuck the link in the program notes. If you want, you can just Google attack watch as a case study of how force stops thinking. And there I recount the fact that a whole bunch of non-leftists out there on the web got together and just heckled Obama for having this site. So it wasn't even him out there on Twitter himself going after individuals and stuff who are saying things about him. It's this site and then private citizens are supposed to go and report each other and everything else. And what is the implication? The implication is that the government has the power to do something to you. If you're saying something it doesn't like, it's not necessarily going to exercise it. Who knows? Attack, you know, the attack watch website didn't, say that, oh, you know, if we find that you're spreading an inaccuracy about Barack Obama, we're going to do something to you. It never said that, but it's in the background. This, you know, government is watching you. We all know that government has the ability right now to make our life miserable in myriad ways, and it's going to gain more power if Bernie Sanders has its way. I mean, just imagine, you know, uh, socialized medicine, right? Universal health care, And then they look you up when they decide whether or not they're going to give you, I talked about on Wednesday, this new treatment for brain cancer, right? Using the Zika virus to eat at the little brain cancer cells and stuff, the the stem cells. How wonderful. Now, maybe you won't have access to the, if you're on one of the wrong lists, 
depths of, you know, what you've been talking about. I'm, you know, my mother, when I was young, and I think at one point I may have signed up to vote libertarian one year at college or something. I didn't know what I was doing. And she says, oh, you should never do that because you're going to wind up on some list. Well, it's very, I, I, who knows what list I might be on now. You know, I think still Shapiro, what he said in his speech last night is, is right. Mostly people don't care about you and they're not going to stop you from doing anything right now. But as the government is amassing more power and as the government continues in its bulk warrantless surveillance of citizens, you'd be on a list, right? Oh, you spread that inaccuracy about Emperor Trump and uh, therefore you're not going to get the Zika virus brain cancer treatment. So sorry. This is the sort of thing that you might worry about reasonably in the background. And you may never know that that's the reason that you were denied it. Oh, well, you know, you're in that age range where we have to do a cost-benefit analysis and the blah, 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 whatever. That's what's going to happen to you. But here's the issue too, right? So suppose you don't know of any particular thing, but you just know that they're watching you. You know that, for example, if you speak out against Trump and it comes to his attention that you might be the recipient of his vitriol on his next tweet session. Just that little bit is maybe going to get you thinking in your mind about the way that you say things, how careful you have to be. Traditionally, with our slander and libel laws, if you are, you know, any kind of public figure, but and I don't, I don't think it should be true of any kind of public figure, but if you're a political public figure, there should be heightened protection with respect to you giving criticism to these people. If somebody wants to be president, senator, some other politician, they have to have a thick skin and realize that they're going to be subject to a lot of unfair, vicious, horrible attacks in the media. It just goes with the job. Why? We need a vigorous press. We need a vigorous press to make sure that the government is still working for us and not working against us, which is what so much of government is doing today. So much of government today is a violation of your rights. We need to be vigilant about this. Anyway, so in the blog post, what I ask you to think about is, you know, if you know a website like this exists, or if you know that Trump's out there tweeting uh, about people who criticize him, you know, just the other day he had that tweet about, well, these people write articles and books and they have zero access to me. You know, that they, it's like, how dare they do this? Suddenly you have to be someone who has, quote, access to Trump in order to properly criticize him or write a book about him in any serious way. It is ridiculous. Tom in the chat room says, you could get worldwide fame if Trump attacked you on Twitter. You could. You could also have worldwide infamy. And I've already had quite a few trolls you know, pro-Trump trolls going after me. So, yeah, Trump makes it clear every day that he's watching us, says Rob. Yeah. So when you think about this in your mind, I mean, you might be somebody like me, and I know that it is crucial that even if you feel intimidated by Barack Obama's attack watch website or Donald Trump's tweeting or whatever it is, that it is crucial that we continue to speak our mind. Now, I'm not going to go out there and say deliberately outrageous things just to show that I can as an exercise of my free speech. 
in fact, sometimes I think I have to be a little more wild and crazy and I need to take that, you know, that humor course from Steve Martin that I'm thinking about. I want to kind of up the ante a little and, and try to see if I can get some of the wit of Shapiro going here. But I'll just state things as I see them. And if I have the ability to be witty and funny, I'll, I'll try and do what I can. Whatever I can do out there to continue to hold the politicians' feet to the fire and make sure that they're doing their job of protecting our rights and that they're not infringing on our rights, they're not even implying that they would like to infringe on our rights. We have to call them on these things. Definitely need to call them on these things. Uh, but, you know, here I am. I'm determined to do this. And nonetheless, am I just the tiniest bit intimidated by attack watch or by Trump's tweets or whatever? Yeah. When I tweet to Trump, do I start thinking about the fact that, oh God, I might get like an IRS audit or something because I've suddenly put myself on a list? Yeah, I think about these things. And it has happened in the past, yes, with other administrations, but you think Trump is beyond that? I've got a couple stories later in the show today showing you that Trump is just like the rest of these politicians. He is no better. And potentially we could say he's even a bit worse. So, um, yes, it is chilling. This sort of thing has a chilling effect, and it counts as censorship. It, can, it at least counts as censorship. And call in and let me know what you guys think about this. You know, where do you draw the line? Do you say, and I know somebody was on the line earlier waiting, but I was still in the middle of my rant here. But if you want to call in and tell me where, you know, where do you think you should draw the line with this? Do you think that Trump should be able to make comments about ESPN and how it's losing audience? It's got crappy programming, you know, just critical comments versus where I think he steps over the line is to tell them what they should do. You know, apologize for this. Sanders saying, okay, that's a fireable offense. A fireable offense is a, you know, not very veiled way of saying you should fire Hill. That's what they think that should be done is that Hill should be fired. So um, there, I think you've actually stepped over it for sure, but you guys can tell me what you think and yeah, get the refresher, go look at attack watch. And I'm being consistent about this, but this, as I say, is the first flavor of censorship. It's, it's presidential. And now then they, people say, oh, the First Amendment says Congress shall make no law. If you don't think that the president isn't when he's out there, if there's an attack watch site or if there's a president tweeting or whatever, if you don't think implicit in the background is that the president isn't going to try to influence in some way legislation or perhaps through executive order or through administrative oversight to the FCC that some consequences would not befall a media outlet that is critical in a way that they say is inaccurate or unfair or whatever it is that they want to say this week, for, you know, forget about it. Um, yeah, it used to be that only Congress made law, but what do we have? We have the pen and the phone, which Trump inherited and which Trump is trying to use to whatever extent that he can. Tim says in the chat room, when the Euronbrook show turned into the What I Think About Trump Today show, I stopped listening. I mean, that's that's fine. It's not going to always be about Trump, but I am going to tweet to Trump every day. I'm going to tweet. So, I mean, if you want to unfollow me on Twitter, Tim, I totally understand that if you don't want to hear. But I, I do think it's important to 
hold his feet to the fire when it's there. No, it's not going to be just about Trump because it's not there. But he's he's the one who has some power to affect our lives at this point, and there is some disturbing content to it. I got to call it as I see it. Mo in the chat room says Trump is not above that. I'm sure if he thought he could get away with IRS targeting his opponents, he'd do it. I, I think he would as well. Is this? Yeah. He, also, Mo says his responding to Jamel Hill and ESPN is just another example of Trump's low self-esteem. This is why I say I think he should just ignore stuff like this. ESPN, I'm pretty sure, does have low ratings because it has had crappy programming and its political commentary has gone left. All of this is true. And so why not just go ahead and ignore? Uh, Rob is telling me Yaron is live from Paris in one hour. I may end up actually cutting today's show a tiny bit short because I've got something that I've got to do in a bit anyway. So I may give you guys enough of a break so you can warm up and go listen to Trump. I'm pretty sure if Trump is coming, excuse me, if Trump, Yaron, (laughs) see, I'm a little tired. I'm slipping there. If Yaron is talking from Paris, I don't think he's going to talk just about Trump. That was what I was going to say, and that's why Trump was on the tip of my tongue there. So, I, you know, I think that it'll be safe for even Tim in the chat room to listen to there. Let me go ahead and give you a short musical break, and I will go on to the next flavor of censorship, which is Antifa. Okay, welcome back. And as I said, topic today, flavors of censorship, three different flavors of censorship in the news, only one of which is is Trump. So perhaps to the pleasant surprise for Tim, it's not all going to be Trump bashing today, is a very important factor in censorship right now. Thankfully, Antifa was taken down a a big peg last night because the police in Berkeley did their job in protecting Ben Shapiro's event on campus. So it was wonderful to do this. But let me be clear up front. When I say flavors of censorship, and I include Antifa in there, Antifa is not a government agency. So what type of censorship am I talking about? Why, why would I say I'd include this as a flavor of censorship? What I call Antifa, if you haven't heard me say it before on this show, is vigilante censorship. Vigilante censorship. And what do I mean by that? These are threats or acts of violence by private citizens, so Antifa, with the intention of shutting down so-called offensive speech or as some people from the far left would call they'd, they'd actually say that it's a violent speech, speech as violence, that speech itself can be a violent act. That is the theory of people like Antifa. So when they say, you know, when they're going to use violence to shut down speech like Ben Shapiro's, they're saying it's in self-defense because the kind of things that he say, he, you know, that he'll say there are actually themselves violent things that, you know, it amounts to violence when Shapiro says what he says. So they think they can shut it down. Uh, as I was talking about on Wednesday, uh, 
what people like Antifa believe is that the government should be stopping Shapiro from speaking because Shapiro's committing an act of violence just by saying the things that he's saying. And because the government is not doing it, they say it's not doing its job, then therefore they are qualified or, you know, they're justified, excuse me, in coming in and doing the job for it, using violence to shut them down. Thankfully, last night they were not able to do that. Shapiro gave his talk. I went ahead and posted the video from Young Americans Foundation on Twitter. That's probably the video that you want to give the most plays to, et cetera, to the extent that YouTube is allowing you know, the Young American Foundation to monetize a speech from Shapiro, you know, YouTube is being a little bit quirky about its monetization policies lately. It'll be interesting if I get up on YouTube, if they're going to allow me to monetize what I do, because I say some pretty controversial things here. Um, but in any event, if you are going to give the plays, we want to give it to Young American Foundation who made that event possible. If you do play that video, keep in mind that Shapiro's speech doesn't start until about 30 minutes into that video. There's a whole kind of blank, you know, there's a screen just saying it's going to start soon, it's going to start soon. And then some administration flunky comes on and basically says, don't necessarily believe Shapiro when he's talking about the administrative or security response to the event or something like that. I only heard the tale of her comment and then he comes on. So, um, but Shapiro, his talk is, is really good. It wasn't actually a, a super long talk, and then he had a long Q&A after that. But it was excellent. Called out Antifa as themselves the fascists. Why? Because they are shutting down speech with force, which is one predominant characteristic of a fascist regime. Of course, there are other characteristics of fascist regimes as well. But if anybody is a, a fascist, if you look at Ben Shapiro versus Antifa, it's Antifa who thinks that they can shut down speech by force. I uh, highly recommend watching his speech. He's, he's excellent there. His, one of his biggest messages is that any of these groups who thinks that they are being victimized by the American system, the first thing is if you are actually being victimized by anybody in America, then what you need to do is call everybody's attention to whoever it is that's making you an actual victim who is doing something to stand in your way. He didn't use exactly these words, but in, to the effect of, you know, who's standing in your way of you pursuing your happiness in the United States today, pursuing the American dream. If somebody is actually serving as an obstacle and they're doing it because they are racist, bigots, whatever, then we want to know about that, he says, because we all want to stand with you against these racists and bigots who would victimize other people. But the system, he says, is not victimizing you. Most people in the United States and the government and everything, they don't care about you. They're not standing in your way. You have only yourself to blame. Get over this victim mentality. And he goes through a couple of different groups and things. So he's got this very strong message. He is also very strong about you know, the, the idea that you cannot use violence to stop speech, that speech itself is not violence. Uh, and he's got some funny things to say in the, you know, the five things that he learned to the effect of, you know, speech not being violence. First, most important thing, though, from his five things, and I love when he does the five things, he's a time saver and he gives you the essentials. He says, when the police are allowed to do their jobs, Antifa is powerless. 
Apparently it cost $600,000 for Antifa to do its job last night. And why did it cost that much? Shapiro's message is no more controversial. It's actually kind of funny now because he had to, you know, call the event a stop campus thuggery event because of this whole issue of using violence to stop controversial or, quote, offensive speech. Why is it costing $600,000 for Ben Shapiro, who's fairly mild? He, you know, he tries. He goes out there and he, and he says some pretty offensive things. But why, um, why is it $600,000? And it's because the authorities, the police, the local politicians, they uh, failed to do their job back in February when Milo came there. And they emboldened Antifa. And, of course, Antifa, I think, was also emboldened from the fallout from Charlotte. Antifa had been emboldened. And even with the massive police presence last night, some of them showed up and armed and everything and got arrested. We'll talk about them in a minute. But $600,000, apparently the cost for Shapiro to go there. I happen to think it was worth it because I think this is very important to make a statement that at a university in 21st century United States, that somebody can come and express a dissenting view, a view with which many people disagree, and that they will be protected in doing so, that protesters will not allow, be allowed to get violent, that dissenting you know, people who disagree with the speaker can come in and ask questions, and then there can be a dialogue and everything else. But it's going to be dialogue. It's going to be speech and speech in, in response. It's not going to be speech and then spy, you know, violence in response. We are not going to accept Antifa's terms of the debate. If you look at the map, at the article, again, all of these are in the program notes. The links are in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. There's a map that Daily Wire published of the different buildings that were actually closed down and cordoned off for the event. They had a very long police in riot gear, a line of police in riot gear. They were getting into position before that. Can you imagine being Ben Shapiro and you're looking at all, all of this? You know, he said the year before he came and gave essentially the same talk. And he had, I think, two security guards and there was no incident at all. And then suddenly a year later, year and a half later or so, I think is, is what it was. Um, yeah, I think the February, I'm thinking is February 2016 was Shapiro and then he came back a year and a half later. I forget when Milo's event was. Whenever it was, the authorities fell down on their job, and that's why they're here. Same content, same guy, no more offensive than he ever was before, and yet this has been made into such a huge issue. Number two for Shapiro, says, many students are infected by the microaggression mentality. The idea that you can... Um, be a sufferer of actual aggression because of something that somebody says. Something that somebody says can be considered aggression against you. He says, the notion of microaggression suggests that if I attack your politics, I am attacking your identity and that such political attacks are a form of, quote, aggression equivalent to violence. Of course, that's part of those people thinking in identity politics terms, thinking in collectivist terms, thinking of themselves primarily as part of a group. And one thing I loved about Shapiro's speech is uh, towards the end, 
towards the very end, he emphasized this, that people need to think of themselves as individuals, not as part of groups. If you thought of yourself as an individual, then you wouldn't see Shapiro's, uh, you know, expression of criticism for an idea as an attack on you because you don't identify with, you know, whatever the group is that's behind that idea. You are an individual. You can choose whether or not you agree with a group or group's ideas and everything else. Apparently the chant there was, speech is violent, we will not be silent. Speech is violent, we will not be silent. Just the mere expression of opinion by Shapiro. There was not an incitement of violence anywhere in that speech. But nonetheless, speech is violent, we will not be silent. Third lesson he learned, many on the left are willing to label anyone a white supremacist. And I saw the tweet out there last night that he was talking about on this. Someone named Tariq Nasheed said, suspected white supremacist Ben Shapiro, who tries to mask his racist rhetoric by claiming to be Jewish, is in Berkeley now. (laughs) Yeah, he just claims to be Jewish, you know, just a disguise. And that's it. So apparently there's a narrative that this Nasheed has and Shapiro actually being a Jew doesn't fit it. And so let's go ahead and rewrite reality and say that Shapiro is lying about being a Jew. Other thing that Shapiro learned, he says, number four, students can handle it, that they actually can handle the disagreement. He says, yesterday we had a bunch of people who disagreed with me who attended the lecture that was great, and I personally thank them there for their attendance. That apparently didn't stop a few from feeling supremely hurt by things they didn't even have the stomach to hear. So some student tweeted out there, just talked to a Berkeley freshman who said she'll be seeking counseling after the Bennett Berkeley event. She's not attending his speech. Actually, I don't know if the person who tweeted this is a student there, just someone reporting what she heard. But yeah, imagine you don't even attend the speech and you decide that it's so bad that you need to seek counseling. As he was talking about in the speech itself, he was saying people just need to actually come here, listen and realize that the sky isn't going to fall. It's not bruises. It's not anything else. It is speech. And you could potentially just go ahead and, and make a counter argument. Imagine that. One of the things that I've talked about on shows in in the past, and maybe one of the reasons that students feel so attacked when they are exposed to views with which they disagree, is that they have not been taught critical thinking in the universities. And some time ago, and I should try to dig it up again, there had been a survey of the critical thinking program and the quality of the teaching of critical thinking skills at universities all around the nation. I remember that UT Austin was one of the schools that they talked about in the in the survey and they were saying that students are not any better at critical thinking skills when they leave a university than when they first come. They are not learning these things in school. And maybe if they did, they would feel more empowered. They would feel like if they're confronted with ideas that they disagree with and confronted with arguments in support of those ideas that they find offensive or they disagree with, they would feel like they could make arguments in return that they were capable, you know, that their, their minds could 
tackle these things, that they weren't reduced to just lashing out or acting out or having emotional reactions, that they could have a cognitive response to these things. Oh, for today's show, Yaron is using the following uh, quote from Rand, argument from intimidation is a confes- confession of intellectual impotence. Oh, certainly. I mean, and, and, you know, I get this all the time on Twitter when people immediately descend into insults. And I was actually watching it on a friend's wall the other day. There was a debate on a friend's wall about climate change. And the friend had made some posting about, you know, climate change and the people who are sort of the climate change alarmists. And the Facebook friend of this person comes in and immediately starts with the insults, immediately insulting. Oh, I thought so much more of you than you were one of these people. And, you know, and it it started at the very beginning and it went all the way through to the end, just insult after insult after insult. And this is an, you know, a version of what Rand called argument from intimidation, Nobody who ever has any credibility would ever think what you think, you know. Um, Yes, it's a confession of intellectual impotence. And, of course, threats are. I had people threaten to, you know, you will shake Jimmy Carter's hand. Otherwise, I am going to steal your luggage. Mo in the chat room says, yeah, the second you fall to intimidation, you concede the argument or debate. Yeah, it is it is easier to go after the person rather than the idea. Sure, it can be easier to do it, but it's also just a confession that you have absolutely no argument at all. But Shapiro's impression from his event was that students are just fine overall and the administration, you know, they are the one who sent out the memo saying that they were worried about people feeling threatened by having to hear or, you know, hear the speech itself or even hear about the speech. You know, they don't want people to feel threatened or that they don't belong because of the ideas that they hold. And so therefore you can have counseling. All of this, he says, is unnecessary. And, you know, I I remember there was one guy out on Twitter. He says, I think if I had a university, I would shut it down before I would ever think I have to offer counseling sessions for people who are confronted with ideas with which they disagree. Fifth, he says, conservatism needs to be heard on campus. Now, what I say, it's conservatism per se. I would say non-leftist ideas need to be heard on campus more. And this is what he also, and I think we do have to point this out. It was a big step in the direction of sending a message to Antifa and anybody else who wants to shut down free speech that the administration, that the local police authorities, the police, they're going to do their job and protect speakers with controversial views. Last night did help to send that message. Nonetheless, the administration did not make it as easy as it should for these ideas to be heard on campus. So, for example, they first heavily restricted the number of tickets that could be sold in this venue. It's a 2,000 seat auditorium, apparently has two levels, and they allowed only the bottom 1,000 seats to be sold. And I talked about that last time. You know, they were concerned that if people went to the top level, that they would unbolt the chairs because the chairs are all bolted down even on the top level. They would unbolt these seats and fling the seats down onto the 
lower audience, the audience members. Why is that a legitimate concern if you have adequate security? So they should have allowed the thousands of people that reportedly wanted to go to this event, at least allow 2,000 people to hear this. And then the other thing that they did is that at first when they, um, you know, people had to reserve their tickets in advance and then they had to come and claim them at the box office. And when some people weren't going to show, like suppose they didn't show, they were going to go ahead and allow those standby tickets to be given to other people who wanted to attend. And at the last minute, they pulled that and said, no, no, we're not going to allow the tickets from no shows to be given to anybody else. So that was a, a further restriction on those who want to hear an opposing view. Shapiro reports there were th- literally thousands who wanted to come to this, and they should be able to. Thankfully, there was the live streaming, and that's one beautiful benefit of the technology. And that'll get us into the third flavor of, of censorship that we're going to talk about in a minute or two. But yeah, so overall, this was great. It shouldn't have to cost $600,000. And if we see each time that the police do their job and they arrest anybody who comes up and threatens violence of any kind, then, you know, Antifa's presence and willingness to engage in violent act, it's going to decrease. You're going to see less and less of Antifa doing that. One other thing I want to talk about with respect to Shapiro, and again, with this this flavor of censorship, this is vigilante censorship. No, this is not government itself. It is Antifa taking it upon itself. And if you want to look at part of the rationale for that, I believe I stuck in here. Oh, I thought I had in my program notes, but now I'm not. Oh, yeah. Okay. There is a link to it. There's a link to it. Yeah. It's, it, there's no video screen on the program notes, but there's a link to the, the Fox News video. Tucker had a pro-Antifa professor on, and that professor very quickly at one point in the conversation, you know, he wasn't, he, he wasn't going to let Tucker pin him down, you know, that he outright was proposing violent acts. But at one point he talks about how the police basically are not working for citizens anymore. That was one of the things that this professor said. And if you talk about the logical consequences of something like that, if you believe and you're teaching your students as a professor at a liberal you know, university like UC Berkeley, if you're teaching them that the police today, they're gerrymandered out of you know, really representing the people, that uh, the people are not represented by today's police, are you going to have respect for the police? Are you, are you going to count on the police or any of the other authorities to do what you think the the government should be doing to protect your rights? No. So they are, in their view, taking the law into their own hands. So you get a little bit of an insight into what the mentality is behind this, that Shapiro's speech is violence, that they're justified in using violence in return. And it's, it's quite sad. Now, what did happen last night? You had nine people arrested, nine people arrested. The charges included carrying a banned weapon, disturbing the uh, the peace, and assaulting police. And again, why are they assaulting the police? If you believe the professor that appeared with Tucker Carlson, it's because they don't believe that the police represent them anymore. They don't respect the police anymore. 
least nine Antifa pro, pro, uh, protesters got themselves arrested on Thursday night outside Daily Wire. Editor-in-Chief Ben Shapiro's Say No to Campus Thuggery speech on the campus of University of California, Berkeley. Most of the social justice activists slash rioters were arrested for carrying banned weapons. At least one was arrested for assaulting police and another for disturbing the peace. Among the nine arrested protesters was Fremont resident Hannah Benjamin, 22, who was taken in near Bancroft Way and Telegraph Avenue for, quote, battery on a police officer and carrying a banned weapon. And I think it's awesome that they're publicizing this out here because what do we want to do? Part of all of this, part of the preservation of freedom of expression, which I talked about the crucial value of preserving this on Wednesday, and it's not just about politics. It is the right of free speech for the exercise of reason in every endeavor. It's very important in politics, but it's important everywhere else, too. So they've, you know, they got this Hannah. Um, another arrested protester was San Francisco resident Sarah Rourke, 44. Rourke was also carrying a banned weapon. She was nabbed near Bancroft, Bancroft and Bowditch Street. The Berkeley police is tweeting this out. Go Berkeley police. That's awesome. When the police are allowed to do their job, I would say most of them are quite good. Another banned weapon carrying protester who got himself arrested was Michael Paul Sullivan, 29 of Hayward, who was detained near where police had grabbed Benjamin. Around two hours after the event, Berkeley PD announced that they arrested a total of nine people, some of the details about whom the department issued a little later. And then they have some of the other wonderful people. There's bug shots, pictures, everything. You can see all of it if you look at the Daily Wire thing. So kudos to Daily Wire. Of course, this is Shapiro's outlet his uh, you know part of his media empire but kudos to them for also spreading the word because we need to mock and expose anyone who thinks it is proper to respond to speech with violence and that's exactly what they're doing i don't know exactly you know what the legal consequences are for those people but it's nice that they were arrested it's nice that they're being exposed and called out for it Okay, so that is the second flavor, censorship. And I'm, I'm going to get into the third in just a second. I guess I'm going to have to hurry a little bit if I'm going to end the show early enough to give you guys a break between mine and your own. Let me get you a quick musical break over here, and I'll be right back. Okay, I'm back, everyone. In the chat room, I'm looking a little bit at the discussion. Michael earlier was talking about these people who subscribe to identity politics. They, you know, if you attack a certain idea, then suddenly they believe that you're attacking their identity and that it's a violent act against you as well. Oh, uh, 
Rob is pointing out Peter Schwartz has an article at Huffington Post, The Ideology of Violence. We'll have to take a look at that as well. You know, what is it that justifies the use of violence in these thugs' mind? So that was our second flavor. So we have presidential censorship. And yes, a president, the way he acts can be construed as censorship. The acts that he has, that he may, you know, the actions that he does can have a chilling effect because there's this implicit threat behind it. And as I said, go read my blog post, Attack Watch, as a case study of how force stops thinking. And in that post, I just ask you to introspect and consider the effect of that implicit threat on your thinking, on your willingness to go out there and speak about controversial ideas. Even if you decide that you're going to continue to speak out, you feel just that bit, that bit of chilling effect. So that was the first. The second is Antifa and its vigilante censorship. And then the third is net neutrality. Net neutrality, apparently there's a big milestone decision going to be made about net neutrality pretty soon. FCC has been taking comments about it, and so there's been some discussion out there. There's this one piece, and I can't remember which friend of mine shared this. I was asking Stuart if it was him, but it may have been Mark Natickman, but I saw this being passed around on the internet and I was able to find it, but I could never find who it was who had posted it. Competitive Enterprise Institute has this little piece published on September 11th, net neutrality rules, internet free speech. And a colleague at CEI apparently made some comments filed with the Federal Communications Commission saying that net neutrality regulations, which purport to make sure that all the traffic on the Internet is treated equally, and you may think supposedly it's protecting your freedom of speech, but actually what it does is it restricts free speech for a certain class of individual in our country, namely those individuals who provide services on the internet. And here's this great example, Charlottesville, Virginia. We, we talked about this. There were some internet service providers who decided that they no longer wanted to provide services to neo-Nazi groups after Charlottesville. Now, whether you think it's a good decision or bad decision, you nonetheless would agree, I believe, that a company has the right to refuse services to a neo-Nazi group. And so if you're an internet service provider, you should be able to say, no, I am not going to spew neo-Nazi propaganda throughout the internet, and I want to shut that down. What net neutrality would do is net neutrality would not let you, as the individual service provider, the company service provider, would not let the company make the decision about this. It would be the government dictating what traffic gets treated what way. That's what now they tell you they're going to do it in a quote neutral way. But do you actually believe that the government is going to tell them to treat the traffic in a neutral way? Do you want to put the power of dictating where, you know, and how the traffic on the internet is treated? Do you want to put that power in the hands of a government bureaucrat, in other words, in the hands of Big Brother and Big Sister, I would say no. And what, this is Jessica uh, Melligan at Competitive Enterprise Institute, what she argues is that, look, internet service providers also have the right to free speech, 
and they exercise their rights of free speech through property rights. They also deserve free speech protections, and net neutrality will take free speech protections away from those companies. Those, you know, and, and what we need to do, what do we need to do with, net, with the Internet? Let the market decide. If certain traffic is being treated poorly, so for example on YouTube, YouTube is not allowing monetization of certain controversial speakers. Everybody protests and goes out and seeks an alternative, a different place to host the videos. If you have a big audience and you leave YouTube because YouTube is not allowing you to monetize your video on YouTube, that's going to hurt YouTube. And if enough, you know, enough people are aware of an unfair policy and they take actions, you let the free market decide here as with everything else. Here's something disappointing that I have to share with you about net neutrality, and it is Apple. Apparently, Apple put out a statement in favor of net neutrality. What I've got a link to in the program notes over at DontLetItGo.com is an article from Forbes headline, How Apple's U.S. Net Neutrality Stance Could Bring on its Chinese antitrust case. And the thrust of this article is that Apple is coming out in favor of net neutrality in its own comments, urging the FCC to follow the Obama administration's net neutrality rules. What's the rationale? He's saying the rationale is going to backfire. Now let's look at what Apple's rationale. They say that online companies, quote, need regulatory assurance that they will be able to reliably reach their customers without interference, end quote, from ISPs. So Apple is buying into the idea that Internet service providers are the bad guys who will, you know, prevent entrepreneurs, say, on the Internet from reaching their potential customers, that the people that we need to fear are the private companies, and Apple is coming out in favor of government bureaucrats being in charge of whether entrepreneurs are going to be able to reach customers without interference. Continuing from the Forbes piece, Apple expressed concern that if internet service providers were permitted to charge for faster transmission of app companies' content based on their, quote, ability or willingness to pay, end quote, it would create, quote, barriers to entry, end quote, for new app companies, making it harder for them to attract investment and succeed. This is really sad because they want the government to be in charge of these barriers to entry. Imagine what you're going to have to do as a new entrepreneur in order to make sure that the traffic that allows you to get to your customers is going to be treated fairly under the net neutrality rules. And you might say, okay, well, right now everything is peachy keen, fine and dandy. And, oh, well, you know, no, no government bureaucrat is really going to shut down freedom of expression. They will have the power. The swamp will be proliferating new, new swamp flora and fauna. It's going to be, you know, some guy who's going to give you pull with respect to getting your internet traffic favorable treatment because of a government bureaucrat say so. <sighs> Apple TV has new free update to 4K streaming. Yeah, well, of course, they want their traffic 
to be treated more favorably and everything else. Now, what is, you know, the argument that's made in the Forbes piece? They say the Chinese antitrust complaint makes essentially the same arguments against Apple's treatment of other app companies. So there are other app companies who I guess aren't treated as well in the app store. And there's an antitrust complaint saying that Apple is interfering with those app companies ability to reach the customers. Um, Both are private companies, right? You have ISPs, all ISPs are private companies and Apple is saying, no, the government should ensure that the people who want to use those ISPs to reach customers are going to be able to, why shouldn't Apple be smacked down with an antitrust complaint because it's interfering with app companies' ability to reach customers in the app store? It's the same exact thing. Now, it's a pragmatic argument, right? You say, okay, well, a- Apple's being hypocritical and, oh, you know, Apple shouldn't have done that because it's going to come back to bite it. The moral argument is that we need to leave these companies free because we do not want the control over traffic on the internet. Again, and I talked about this when I was on the next revolution with Steve Hilton on Fox. I talked about this with him. The internet is the place where we all have a voice and we don't want our ability to state our opinion and me to tweet to Trump and all the different things I do to be shut down because of big brother. If it's under the control of big brother, All Trump would have to do every day is say, oh, yeah, I got a critical tweet from this one. Make sure that 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 person's tweets don't go out. It'd be done. It'd be done. Pen in the phone. Easy. We do not want Big Brother in charge of Internet traffic. Therefore, we do not want so-called net neutrality. Net neutrality will not be neutral. It will be controlled by government bureaucrat, a.k.a. the swamp. That's all it's going to be. So that's our third, perhaps most disgusting flavor of censorship. You know, the censorship of net neutrality is something that people don't even necessarily see as censorship. It needs You need to think about it. A lot more people will say, okay, well, you know, should Trump really be saying this? Uh, a lot more people will start to realize Antifa is shutting down speech and expression and discourse. This, it's a, a really disgusting, revulsifying flavor of censorship, this, this net neutrality. And it's very disappointing to me that Apple's coming out uh, for it. A few things. Yeah, I don't want this to be what do I think of Trump today show, but those of you who are in favor of Trump, just start thinking about it. Trump did have a statement about the rich potentially having to pay more in taxes. And He had said this. Let me go ahead and quote from him because I don't want to misrepresent his view. As for taxing the rich, Trump said during a meeting with a bipartisan group of lawmakers, his second in as many days, that the wealthy, quote, will not be gaining at all with this plan. If they, the taxes, have to go higher, they'll go higher, frankly, end quote. Higher taxes for the so-called rich are on the table. And as you and I know from basic economic theory and from Bill Whittle's very capable video about, you know, so-called taxing the rich in order to take care of our country's fiscal problems, our country's fiscal problems are not solved one iota by taxing the rich. The only reason to tax the rich is, as I said in a tweet in response to our dear leader, as I call him, 
Um, the only reason is to satisfy the demands of, and I say the demands are the representatives of the have less. That's who these politicians are. They are the representatives of the have less in the country. It's not even that the have less want all, you know, not everybody who's has less than the rich wants to tax the rich. Not everybody wants to. In fact, some of the rich are the worst, most sanctioned the victim types out there. You know, they feel guilty about their wealth and they feel they have a moral duty to everybody else. And yeah, tax me more, you know. The have less don't necessarily want it, but these self-appointed representatives of the have less who get in these little meetings with Trump, they make their demands. Trump thinks that they speak for the have less and he swallows the altruist egalitarian ethics as much as anybody else. Trump sees his job as just satisfying as, you know, as many demands as possible. And of course, trying to get his way and potentially keep some campaign promises. So if the the rich need to be taxed more, if it it has to happen, if we have to steal more, we're going to steal more. That's your Trump for you. And I would say it's predictable, but you can, you know, say what you want and you can say, well, Amy, don't, don't become the bash Trump show, but when it's warranted, I'm going to do it. U.S. extends waiver on Iran sanctions, but warns it's an interim move. Trump has apparently not been able to decide yet whether it wants to pull out of the Iran deal, as he talked about in his campaign. Uh, and he is going to take apparently a whole month in order to decide whether to continue with the agreement or by saying that, uh, you know, Iran maybe isn't meeting its commitments under the deal one way or the other. Why does it have to be a whole nother month? Trump's been in office for a long time. This was a priority. This was a campaign promise. Still, we're continuing the waiver on the sanctions. Iran, more money is flowing to them in order to fund terrorism and potentially help prop up their nuclear campaign and all this other stuff. But Trump did it, so go ahead and excuse it. Next, Trump slammed for response to London YouTube terror attack. Now, here I'm not so sure that he necessarily did anything wrong. The thing that he was slammed for was for saying that the perpetrators of this bomb attack in the, in the tube in London today, uh, that they were known to authorities already. And we've seen this in some of the terror attacks. And I don't know if it's true with respect to this, and I think they haven't revealed whether it's true with respect to this attack. But is this something that you would want to hear a U.S. president commenting about? It would be nice to know that Trump makes as a priority the protection of American citizens from attacks like this and that he wants to make sure that at least in our country people who have been on the radar of the FBI you know our equivalent authorities here that those people are being more closely monitored and at least if they're not brought in or deported or whatever should be happening to these people at least they're not going to be let go and and unsupervised to the point of carrying off an attack like this. So I don't know that it's necessarily wrong for him to comment about it. Would it be wrong for him to reveal it in advance of official announcements in that country, you know, revealing that this person was known to authorities and everything else? 
maybe, you know, again, we could have these discussions over beer and wine and stuff, but I don't know that it's necessarily wrong for him to comment on how sad it is that in some of the countries where these attacks have taken place, that the people who perpetrated the attacks were on the radar. I've got another link for you in the program notes with respect to the attack, and it is the statement of the London mayor. I don't trust this guy, and I, you know, I'll join Trump in being critical of this guy. And, and here's the reason. You know, he'll criticize, quote, terrorists. But he does not criticize jihad and he does not criticize ISIS. So here's the full of his statement. This is Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London. Quote, our city utterly condemns our city, right, our city. Our city utterly condemns the hideous individuals who attempt to use terror to harm us and destroy our way of life. So it's terror he's denouncing. It's individuals. ISIS claimed responsibility for this, but he's not denouncing ISIS. Continuing with his statement, quote, as London has proven again and again, we will never be intimidated or defeated by terrorism. That's empty stuff as far as I'm concerned. If that's not in a denouncing, that is, you know, oh, we, we won't be intimidated or defeated. That's, that's empty. It's not comforting in any way because it doesn't say anything about what he's going to do or that he even really disapproves. He's in close contact with all these response agencies. Okay, who cares? My sincere gratitude goes to all our courageous emergency responders who were first on the scene, urge Londoners to remain calm and vigilant, and check you know, this official website for travel advice. That's all. So the only statement that was actually condemnatory was this one. Our city utterly condemns the hideous individuals, you know, lone wolves, right? individuals. I don't trust this guy. Bad. Um, so I don't necessarily think it's wrong for Trump to call out governments of other countries that aren't adequately protecting their own citizens. The implication is that he's going to do something to do it right here. My concern with Trump is that in the name of safety, that he is, you know, essentially willing to do anything, bulk surveillance and you know, tramping all over everybody's rights and stuff. And, he, and he's not doing the right things to protect us. So we shall see as, as time goes on. And then there is this tweet. Then this one, oh, I think, yeah, I did talk about refugees. You know, has, has Trump taken funding for refugees out of his budget yet? He needs to do that because he, again, was tweeting about how he's not getting the travel ban that he wants. If he doesn't get the travel ban he wants, he has an option, which is to remove funding for refugees entirely from his budget proposal. Let's watch and see if he does it over time. That's a thing that he should do. In the ongoing debate about health care, Stuart sent me this tweet from Bernie Sanders even though Rand Paul clearly identifies socialized medicine as slavery, that is a bullet that Bernie Sanders is apparently willing to bite. This Canadian doctor thinks otherwise. So he's a Canadian doctor, and so I don't, I don't understand. Where um, the Canadian doctor is talking in the thing, you know, he's, he's going ahead and appealing to the authority of some Canadian doctor. Ridiculous. Uh, if it's slavery, I mean, I guess it's justified to enslave some people. After all, in Plato's theory of the philosopher kings, it was justified to do that. 
I threw in the Ayn Rand bot quote in the program notes, defiance, not obedience is the American's answer to overbearing authority. I hadn't put that in there as an answer to Tim, but Tim, this is part of the reason that I'm doing this. This is why I'm going to keep hammering on Trump. It is because I think it is important to do it. I I used to hammer on Obama mercilessly. I think it's even more important to do it with respect to Trump because people do see Trump as a friend of liberty of some kind, and he is not. He is a pragmatist. He is trying to satisfy as many demands as possible so that he can get reelected. He is a narcissist prima donna who tweets out there that you cannot properly criticize him unless you have, quote, access to him. I'm sorry. I'm going to do it. I'm going to keep doing it. I mean, I'm not going to do it. I've got nothing to talk about. I, I don't tweet to him at all on days when there's no, you know, red meat, as I would see it, nothing that I have anything really unique to say about it. But if I do, I'm going to continue. And if it offends some people, I'm truly sorry, but I'm doing it because I think it's the the right thing to do. And that's what we as as Americans do. So everyone, I'm going to let you go, uh, give you a little break so you can run around, stretch your legs, and then go listen to Yaron, who's going to be broadcasting from Paris. It sounds like you're going to hear more about freedom of expression from him, which is excellent. We really need to, you know, first of all, kudos to Ben Shapiro for pulling off that event yesterday and being brave and going out there and doing it. Kudos to all the administration and the authorities for doing what they needed to do to make sure that Antifa was taken back a notch, that they don't believe that they're going to be in control of who gets to speak in 21st century America. That's wonderful. It's a lot of progress that we made last night. We need to continue to make more. We need to make it easier and less expensive for people with dissenting views to be heard on campus. Hey, I want to go do this and speak on different campuses at some point. So uh, $600,000, are they going to spend that on me? No, they'll spend it on Shapiro. So come on, let's make it cheaper. So the market opens up for, for people like me as well. Thanks, everyone. I will talk to you guys Monday, 3 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Pacific. And have a great weekend.